2: Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Welcome, everybody. Thank you guys for being here. First and foremost, uh, that was an amazing practice. Donnie and I, we co-host a podcast called Comeback Stories. Uh, we really try to uh, have real conversations. You know, Donnie and I both had a lot of things happen in our lives through our recovery journeys, and we found that just by being vulnerable every single day, wherever we go with whoever we're with, is how we've been able to, you know, establish freedom in our lives and maintain it. Um, so this is the platform we try to carry that to, and just to have you know conversations you may not hear normal people having, but it's a conversation that really allow you to form deeper bonds. So. I'm excited to share this platform with Donnie and we've got an amazing guest, Zach here today. So let's get to it. Let's do it. I love you guys a lot, special you, dudes up here. All
4: right, so we are here with Zach Clark, founder of Release Recovery and Release Recovery Foundation. Also the winner of ABC's Bachelorette where he was one of the most notable reality TV stars to share his message of sobriety. On national television so we're glad to have you here man
5: i don't know what just happened in that prayer and meditation but i'm feeling everything so <laughs> let's do this like, I'm, I'm grateful to be here all right we dive right in we want
6: to know what was it like for you growing up so you know for me i could sit here and tell you that things were hard but they weren't you know like i have a very loving family i'm one of
5: I'm one of five kids and my parents are still very much in love today and you know my existence growing up was I really like I I measured who I was as a human being on how I was like doing on the sports field and what my old man kind of like thought I was doing on the sports field you know and and so like that for me was a big piece of of my growing up and I never really vocalized that. But if you looked at the Clark household from the outside looking in, like everything, everything was cool. You know, we had the white picket fence and I grew up in South Jersey and, you know, I went to a really good public school and I never really wanted for anything. You know, like I was probably the kid on the team, like with the new bat, you know, that everyone was using. And like, so I think that's a good way to kind of to kind of put it right to bring you into that to that upbringing that I have. All that said doesn't mean that I didn't have my my shit, my stuff going on. So
6: Mm.
4: I'm always fascinated by that because that's obviously Darren and I came up with these questions in first couple of podcasts. The first one was Darren telling his story and the second one was mine. And growing up for Darren was confusing. And if you've heard that story, mine was also easy. Right? Confusing, easy, easy, but yet we somehow all landed in a in a
5: in a dark place at some point in our lives i, mean, I, I I'll say this like when i when I showed up in New York City ten years ago like I, I and I'll get into this like I got sober and I showed up in New York City, there was an element of culture shock right because I grew up in this white anglo saxon Protestant town where like the parents would go to the country club you know on Friday night, and the kids would go drink on the eighth hole of the country club you know like or 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 one of the houses where the parents were at, and there was there was no diversity, there was no culture, there was no introduction to like everything else that was going on in the world. And I, don't, I don't blame my family, I don't blame my upbringing, I don't blame anyone for that other than that's just like the hand I was dealt. Uh, but I get it and I understand why people end up being the way they are in this world because sometimes it's just that lack of education or knowledge, right? Like this whole idea that knowledge is power. So that was definitely adjustment as I like pushed through in, in my life.
6: Can you talk about uh did you have an early memory of pain pain huh i don't i mean i can tell you this like i know growing up that i was a
5: very emotional kid and i still am very emotional today like i feel stuff on a level that like can be really uncomfortable and i don't know if i can point to pain but i remember i don't know if anyone relates with this but like I love my parents so much. And I was always so scared of death growing up. Like that was a thing that just like crippled me for whatever reason. Like what happens after we leave this planet? And I remember like when my mom would tuck me in at like 12, 13, 14 years old, like I would have these crazy thoughts of, all right, I want to live to be 30. And then I want to die because I don't want to see my parents die. I don't want to see anyone around me die. I don't want to know what happened. Like it was this whole crazy. So like it wasn't pain, but it was like these really intense thoughts of, of, like, a little kid I don't think should be having. The other pain that I felt is, you know, I would say, like, as it relates to being an athlete on the field, I – and it ended up, like, propelling me forward. But growing up, like, I hit puberty late, right? So, like, I was always the smallest kid. (laughs) Same. Same. (laughs) Yeah. We're at the concert last night, and this dude is like, I'm like standing behind him. I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I had pure, and so like I was, I always felt like I had to figure stuff out, and and like on the athletics field, like there was always this element of this chip on my shoulder of like I knew everyone was a little bit better than me, but I'm gonna figure out a way, and that would carry into my drug use down down the line because I always figured it out. I
6: always got what I needed. Who was your first real teacher? growing up, so, I, I look at my childhood, and,
5: you know, there's no, like, my parents have always, and still to this day, continue to be my greatest teacher, just because I feel like, like, I was never grounded, I was never in trouble, but they taught me the difference between right. You know, and from a very early age, my dad taught me, like, you know, don't go out to eat at a restaurant if you can't afford the 20% tip to take care of the person waiting on you. You know, like, these little things that he started to, like, drop into my life, and I saw him. You know, like, there was a period of time, like, right before I started really remembering stuff that that the family was kind of like my dad did go into bankruptcy and there was like some things going on that I knew behind the scenes. My parents were kind of masking that said, like I I said, like I never wanted for anything, but he taught me about like grit and perseverance and pushing forward. And so I I really, I revered my father and then my mother was just, and still is the best. I mean, I I, like my mom picked up golf recently in like the last three, four years. I love golf and I've been golfing with her and it's, being out there on a golf course with my mother has been one of the greatest gifts I've I've been given, you know, because I just learned so much from her, and even to this day, she's a teacher. Like, as a woman who's you know sixty whatever years old, having the you know courage to pick up a golf course, a golf club and start playing is it was amazing to me. She doesn't even know this, right? Uh, and then I look at I look at some of like you know my coaches.
6: My coach is growing up and my high school football coach was, you know, a high school football
5: coach, you know, (laughs) he he was in your face. I know exactly what you mean. (laughs) Right? I know exactly what you mean. I mean, he was in your face, but every practice would kind of like end with a prayer. And he really just wanted to teach us to be men. I didn't understand that at the time. I thought he just wanted to win games, but he had been around long enough and to know that, like, win or
6: lose, his his role was to make me a better person. And uh, to this day, I mean, I love I love
5: being taught. Like, I mean, that's why I reached out to you. I needed. I got to a place in my life
6: where I needed. I wanted to level up again, you know. So having that open mindedness. But yeah, I love coaches. I love mentors.
3: Um, I'd love for you to take us through um, from like the beginning of your using journey and what that looked like for. Because for anybody that doesn't really know my story, uh, I started using when I was like 15, and it felt like my life got better when I was using. And then, like if you if you look at it from like you zoom out, it's like I went to a great college and then I went to the NFL. and It's just like all these things look great, but really it was like my inner world and like my character and my integrity were just like going down, like inverse of where like my professional career and all these things that people celebrated was going great. So like could you like parallel like what your life was looking like but while also like what you're using was maybe doing to you at the same time? Yeah, yeah, I'll dumb it down. I mean I typically
5: take a long time to tell the story, but I'll I'll uh and I, I just want to say, like, I just want to vocalize just sitting up here with you and being here with you guys. I just, every time I'm around, specifically men that are doing the deal and like staying sober on a deal, like sober people are the best, you know, and like we went to this concert last night, right? And we, and a couple of our friends that we met showed up, which is just amazing in itself. But, you know, we at 11 o'clock on a Friday night, we were able to like spark these like awesome conversations with people that we just met and like that to me is what has been one of the biggest gifts like just this connection and like being here with you Donnie and and Darren like it's it's crazy. But no yeah I mean I like I said like I started I I remember my first drink vividly because it was it was at a Christmas party and you know kind of like kind of like the story goes like the older guys handed me this beer and I drank it. And I went back to the Christmas party where all the parents were hanging out. My mom and dad were like, where were you at? And like, I lied about where I was at. What were you doing? I lied, you know? And that was the moment at like 14, 15 years old, whatever it was, that I learned how to lie. And what was validated by me from the world is that the next morning I woke up and Christmas happened and I opened gifts and no one figured anything out. And I was like, it's like this light bulb went off. It was like, oh, I can tell people whatever I want. And they're just gonna believe me. So as much as my and we got into this a little bit last night about like the what for me doesn't matter. I mean, it started with a drink and it ended up with a needle in my arm. And what happened in between was crazy. But I always like to say it's not so much about the substance, it's about what was going on with me. And so, you know, I took that first drink and I I fell in love with that party life. You know, and I fell in love with the way that alcohol made me feel, and the way that alcohol allowed me to kind of leave this crazy mind and this like
6: hole in the soul that I had come too familiar with, even at, a, at like a young age. And so, you know, what it looked like was like high school. Right? I was, I was
5: my superlative in the yearbook. Was life of the party, and I wore that shit like a badge. You know what I mean? And like, I was the guy, like, hauling the kegs out to the woods and, like, you know, making everyone do shirt off shotguns and belting out classic rock songs and lighting the biggest bonfire. It was like that dazed and confused existence. And I was like, this is life. This is why we're on this planet. I am like, I figured it out. And, uh, you know, then I showed up at college and I went, I, I had a choice, like, going into college. It was like, you can go and you can play baseball at a lower level, like a smaller Division three school, which is what I ended up doing, or I could go to a University of Maryland, University of Delaware. And something is like I, I knew something. If I went to one of those big schools, like it was game over. Like I wasn't going to make it full if I did that. So I go to this small little school out in New York, Pennsylvania, which like is this obscure place. I was just back there for the first time a couple of weeks ago in like ten years. So mind bending. Um, But I started drinking and and then I started doing the drugs at that point, right? Like I found the Coke, I found the Adderall, I found these things that allowed me to
6: drink longer and stronger than just drinking. But the thing that's important for me to say is like, I kept my
5: appearance up. I showed up in practice, I worked hard. I was like the vocal leader of the team. Like I dressed that shit up the way that I thought I had to and and it kept working. And uh, I'll just never forget, like, my senior year, I was probably blacking out, like, two, three times a week. And I didn't even know what a blackout was. Like, I thought when people drank, you just drank and you forgot stuff because that's what happened when you, when you drank. And then, like, one of my friends, like, he said, you know, that's not normal to, like, stop remembering stuff after 11 o'clock. I was like, really, dude? That doesn't happen to you? And I was like, it was like this yeah. moment of, like, there's something wrong with me. And, uh... You know, I'll speed it up, but like I never had consequences. And it wasn't until I, I met this girl my sophomore year, and I ended up marrying her, you know, after we got out of college. And what happened for me was I left college. I thought I was gonna play baseball, that didn't work out. I thought I was gonna like be involved in sports, that didn't work out. This like central part of my relationship with my father was taken away from me. Right, because like our whole relationship was based around baseball, which was sweet, but at the same time is like really sad because
6: there's nothing else that we ever talked about. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I
5: had a, I, it was Memorial Day weekend, and I was packing my car to go to the shore with a bunch of friends. Like this is like the summer after college, and I had not been feeling good, and this just like tells you a little bit about like where I was with my. Was m- with my use, like I kept telling my family that I didn't feel well, and they kept telling me, "Zach, you're just hungover, right?" So it started to become a part of my identity. Like I would come down in the morning, I hadn't drank, and I was like, "I really don't feel well." So I took it upon myself to go get it to go get an X ray, and the, I like went to this side of the road X ray place <laughs> on the way to the Jersey Shore Memorial Day weekend, and this woman came back like with my scan and was like, "Yo, you're sitting right there, like you have something growing on your brain. You gotta like you gotta go and you gotta go." And I'll never forget, like, what do you mean? And within 12 hours, I'm in surgery, getting this tumor cut out the back of my head. And I share that experience and I've never been healthier in my life. Like it ended up not being cancerous. I mean, it was scary. I was in the hospital for, you know, like 20 something days or whatever, like occupational therapy, learning to walk, talk to all that stuff again. But the feeling is what's most important. And the feeling I had while I was in that hospital and which is like something that I've really come to understand in, in my recovery is that, and when people come to me for help, because that happens a lot of times. I'm sure Darren, for you, like people come to you for help. And I had so much love in that hospital room. University of Penn hospital, I'll never forget. It. People bringing me cheesesteaks and soft pretzels, putting the Phillies on, like it was amazing. And I couldn't stop thinking about what I was going to do when I got out of that hospital bed, mm-hmm. which was I was going to go drink and drug with permission, because now I'm some kind of like hero for getting through this thing. So my whole life was this negotiation of like, if I do this, I get to party this way. And you know, I know I don't have I don't have all the data to, to tell the story, but basically what ended up happening is I get out of the hospital, I recover, I get on one knee, I propose to my you know girlfriend at the time. We had this big party down the Jersey Shore. I remember like turning the corner to like get married, and like had this moment of like am i about to do, you know. But at that point in my life, it was like it would be the what the and then like let's keep moving forward. So I go, I go on this honeymoon, I like detox on the honeymoon. It's just, it's so insane. We went to like you the Virgin Islands, we're like I I don't even know. But anyway, land back in Philly and the first text message I sent is my drug dealer. You know, after like spending a full week detoxing like and that's what I always said. There's no, there was no amount of love or human power that was going to get me sober. Like I had to go through what I had to go through. And I ended up in, in rehab the first time. And to this, like to your point, like the parallel, like I, I never once really thought about getting sober because in my life, nothing was going wrong yet. And the first consequence came after the first time I went to rehab. My My wife at the time, now ex-wife, and one of my angels on this planet. I got high five days after I got out of the rehab. She's like, "Yo, you're out of here. This party is over," and she meant it, and she held that boundary, and she walked out the door, and that was the end of that relationship. Like she and she saved my life because then for the next eight months, what happened was between that rehab and the second rehab, it got really gnarly, and I'm not going to go into the stories, but it ended like during that eight months i had my gallbladder cut out chasing painkillers like my gallbladder was completely fine like i went under just to get that thing taken out so that i could get three or four more days of the pain pills the doctor was from my hometown so he's like you sure you're like you sure you want to go through this I was like absolutely you know and i was able to go back to that doctor like in my recovery and sit him down and be like dude i was totally full of shit like i apologize for, for you know like that's the stuff we get to do but it ended up like alone in camden new jersey sleeping on a cardboard box not because i had to Like my family loved it. like they would have taken my calls but because i thought that's what i deserved you know with a needle in my arm and a crack pipe in my mouth and that's just where it went for me and uh at that point the consequences started coming and coming quick and there's a whole story around how my dad came in the bank and you know, the bank teller called him. He rushed down to the bank, he kind of grabbed my arm and off to rehab I went. And that was August, you know, of, of 2011. Here I am today with whatever 10 plus years sober. So that was one of the, like, that August of 2011 was the darkest time.
6: And the parallel of what was going on in my life from like this kid who like had it all, right? To literally
5: alone. Hanging out with drug dealers like trying to turn my next trick
3: was just that's what happened. Right. And I feel like that's why it's important to talk about like addiction and alcoholism as a disease, right? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people, I feel like it's an old school thing to be like, man, you would stop if you wanted to, or like you got the willpower, you had the strength. But it's really like you hear this and you hear so many examples of why somebody should stop. And you're like, why wouldn't they? But it's this craving that develops. And it's like a disease of the mind and the body. It's like somebody can have so many good things going, so many good opportunities, so many good relationships, but still just tear it down. And then eventually it's like, you know, you talked about from when you start about lying and then, you know, all the things that you did from getting your gallbladder removed, it's like, there's this stench that grows inside of you. At least I know for me, where it's just like, you don't really fuck with you. Like you just like, you lose that self-respect and, it just drives you deeper and deeper and the consequences just don't hit anymore. Like I've got arrested three times. I've been suspended or kicked off of every level of athletics I've ever played on, um, you know, overdosed in my car off of pills and it's just like all these things kept happening, kept happening, kept happening. It's just like, it was never enough, but it's this disease that's in me, that's developing and festering, you know, unless you really, you know, put the world on pause and are able to go to, a rehab and take multiple times because I went to outpatient programs and things, and I was just like, I'm not having this. But eventually, you get brought to your knees at some point. I can relate so much to the uh, gall ba-
4: gallbladder surgery because, too many people that don't understand, would be like, Who the hell does that? I did it, awesome. I, had a, I had a surgery. On my knee. <laughs> we did, I, I
6: had
0: a surgery.
4: <laughs> Doctor asked he, I had some issues going on with my knee, and he's like, I can squeeze you in tomorrow. I'm like, Done. Because that means I'm guaranteed going to have pills tomorrow. That's the insanity. That's the power of the disease um, and the grip that it can have on you. So to share that is so important. And for these guys to share it on the platform that they have, I mean, Darren and I started this podcast um, on a mission to reach as many people as possible to, to remind them that they're not alone. So when you might hear something in Zach's story or, or my story or Darren's story, it kind of bankrupts that the story that we're telling ourselves of I'm alone, nobody understands. At my rock bottom, that's what I was saying. My understanding of mental health and suicide and people who are about to make that that decision, that's the story they're telling themselves. I'm alone. So as we start this, and, and for you guys to share it on the stage that you have, um, it's such a beautiful gift to be so real and raw. And um, I always say you're only as sick as your secrets, so it's kind mm-hmm. of cool to be able to uh, For you guys to be able to to do it on such a large
5: stage. But what do you think for you, what was real quick on that like but that's where the freedom comes from in like being honest, right? Because like and it's funny, I keep going back to this experience we had at this concert last night. Like we we went to this concert and then we were hanging out with these these people afterwards, and I turned to this one kid and I said, Do you party? He's like, Naturally, yes. I was like, That's cool, man. And like there really is no judgment in that question. What I loved about this kid, Justin, that I met. Is that he was fucking honest, you know, and like that—that that is what I've taken from all of this. Is like so many people lie
6: because they think the world wants them to be a certain way. Yeah,
4: and for um, again, I come back to both of you for the stage that you have, and to watch how you have given other people permission to do the same, to be in a safe space, you know, and watching Darren and other NFL guys follow him and talk openly about their sobriety, like this dude over here. Uh, I feel like I'm his hype person because he's humbled, humble to a fault sometimes. You, <laughs> but um, <clears throat> he's done, done amazing things and given guys permission and now they're, they're, doing, they're doing the same. It's kind of like the lone wolf, the one that has the courage to step out um, and then who will follow. Well, a lot of players have. And again, I think you're, you're changing the language and um, changing this whole perception and breaking the stigma of addiction and what it really means. No. so what's what was the story that you had to stop telling yourself in order to tell your comeback story
6: you mean once i was like
4: sober and comfortable with it yeah or? like what well, i always say with the only story that matters is the one that we tell ourselves so what was it
6: like what was the the shift for you I think for me, like, and I even think back to when I was in rehab, like, I went to rehab for four and a half months, and I started to see that people
5: love me just for who I was then, because it was, it was this whole idea of, like,
6: I started to tell the truth, um, and people were just like, oh, that's cool, you know, like, I started to get this affirmation from them
5: and like no one was like there was the only judgment taking place was my judgment of myself
6: mm-hmm.
5: and that's what i had to kind of like
6: work past and then
5: i fully recognize and i acknowledge the fact that like i've even before any like look look i acknowledge that people most people out there know me because i was on this reality television show, right and that's cool and and, and i'm fine to lean into that I also acknowledge and know and have to know that, like, I am, I am much more than that. And so I was actively telling my story and leaning into my truth well before, you know, any, any appearance on television. And that's something that I had to get comfortable with really early on because, in recovery, what I've learned is that I don't get to keep any of this unless I'm sharing it, giving away to all the people around me. So, right. living this, right? I mean, that's what we learned. And it's this life of service, and all that shit sounded so cheesy when I was first getting sober. It's like prayer, meditation, service. I was like, take, take all this bullshit. Yeah. And and like, you know, but I started to do it and I started to open up and I started to see people come back, like, hey man, thanks for doing that. Thanks for sharing that. Good to meet you. And I was like, I started filling up my teacup with, with with the good stuff. And so. I don't know if i'm really answering your question but i think like for me like the shift for me occurred
6: when i really learned and understood that if i'm not if i am not okay there's two things i understand that i have to be sober like i understand that for myself
5: i'm not going to judge anyone else but for me drinking and drugging you know us work. like that's a fact that i have to swallow and like that's just the way it's and then two, in order to keep my sobriety, and, and this is where the whole like shift comes in, I understand that I need to be willing and ready to share my
6: experience with someone else who is struggling at any time. And by doing that, I got very comfortable in my own skin.
3: I think that's deep because <coughs> like that willingness that you talk about, it comes with like a sense of discomfort. Like- everything about getting sober and changing my life was uncomfortable, but it's valuable because every experience that's uncomfortable, any kind of fear, like there's no way around it. There's no way to just like, and there's no running in the opposite direction from it. Cause it's going to stay there. But if you walk through the things that are uncomfortable or that scare you or the things that you think you'd never share with anybody, once you share those things going through, that is what gives you that liberation, that feeling of like, Okay, like that weight is off my shoulders. But if we don't seek this route of discomfort, of everything's within our comfort zone and things that we like to do and things that we know how to do, um, we're gonna be stuck in the same place. That's the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same shit and thinking that things are gonna change. So.
6: (laughs) How has life been for you post reality
4: show, post bachelorette? Stepping, I'm kind of fascinated by the idea of maybe being a not a known public figure obviously you're doing amazing things in the community in the recovery world but like stepping back into that and and being recognized to me that feels very daunting so how was it initially and what do you do today to uh to not give your power away and have boundaries and not take in some of that energy that's probably trying to
6: penetrate your your whole energy field I remember one of my going back to mentors telling me very early on, and I, I keep like, you're gonna get from me like the things I believe in as
5: community, like humans doing stuff shoulder to shoulder, whether you're in recovery or not. Like this room is not all people that are sober. Uh, these are all people that chose to be here today for whatever reason. Maybe it was to do yoga, maybe it was to get a picture with Darren. Like, I don't know why the hell they're here, but like they decided to show I don't up. Think <laughs> But, um, you know, so community and truth. And so for me, like one of my mentors early on grabbed me and like looked me dead in the eye.
6: You know, like looked me. He's like, Zach, there is one story, and that's the truth. One story. You have lived your life. Your life has happened. That is the fact. There's no like
5: 110
6: percent. There's no ninety like. There's 100% your story, your truth. And so for me, I I think, I don't think, I actually know, like going into that experience,
5: stepping into that environment, a lot of people are like, well, how do you drink? And was everyone drunk? And how do you do this? I'm like, that's just, there's not even a thought about that because this is how I live my life. And so coming out of that, like what I have had to do is continue to try and just be my most authentic self. And so like where I've run into, where I've gotten resentment, I will say, is like the person that comes up and this happens and they just want the photo because I'm a piece in their text message chain or their story or like whatever the hell it is. Right? Like I'm just like, I'm a piece of, I'll say like meat. They ask for the photo and then they run away. I want to humanize that shit. I want to say, what's your name? what's going on, you know, and I've had to really understand that like that people, some people just don't want that. And the people that do want to connect and do want to talk about it, you know, they'll stick around and they probably won't even ask ask for the picture because that's not what they're there for. Right. And so I think there's a certain level of trust that I've had to develop. I think I've had to tighten my circle a lot. Like I've brought a lot of people in and I've connected with more people, but like my real circle, like there's a dude, Joe, here today who's like in my real circle, who knows what time it is with me all day, every day. And I have to have a few of those people because I trust I trust him, you know. And that's also been hard is that like I've actually seen some people act a certain kind of way that I didn't think that that's who they were. And that's not my shit. You know, and if I want to give my power away to that, then I'm going to be in a jackpot. But that's why, I mean, like,
6: like I always say, right, like Michael Jordan had Phil Jackson. Every great athlete has a coach at some point.
5: And that's why, like, at 10 years sober, like, I reached out to you and I was like, yo, over, like, and then how did I get to you? Like, how did I get to, like? Fucking social media, which can be the devil. But there's also, like, I choose to see the good in them. And I lean into that. Like, people, like, when you ask them how they met, well, like, we met on Hinge? You know, and they're like, like I'm like, yo, I reached out to Donnie on social media. What's up? Yeah. You know, and, like, it's all energetic, you know?
4: I slid into Darren's DMs. <laughs> that's, how, that's, how, that's, that's how we met. It's powerful. I sat there, was watching Hard Knocks. And when, basically, Darren came out and shared his story of recovery, it was I instantly jumped on Instagram and reached out to him and said, Hey, I work with athletes, work, work with the Phoenix Suns back home. And I'm like, If you ever need anybody, I got you. Like, mm. he reached out. So it's a beautiful thing. It's a power shoot of connection.
5: Shoot, shoot or shoot.
4: Yeah. What are you most grateful for today?
5: I mean, that's it, my sobriety, man. I mean, that's just it. Like, that's everything stems from that. And I remember explaining that to my mother because she took offense to it. You know, she's like, what do you mean? I was like, I was taught that it needs
6: to be the most important thing in my life above anything else, my sobriety. And you know, after that, it's family. and like, I am so grateful. I work in behavioral health care. I see
5: broken family systems. I see absent fathers, absent mothers, I see the adoption, I see the ways these things affect people that that's not my story so i'm very grateful for that uh so my
6: family my recovery is like right here variety then it's my family and then you know as you were saying the lord's prayer today you know that 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 prayer that is just so beautiful it's just i I started to get emotional Darren, because it's like this community and, and humans, like there is a lot good in the world if we look for it. And I say that because that's something I'm grateful for is this ability
5: to not, like negative people drive me nuts, bro. They just drive me nuts. Cause it's just like, it sucks the energy out of you. And like, I do a pretty good job of not talking shit, but like if I'm around someone that's negative, like I'll take that, I'll take the bait. And next thing I know, I'll be like calling someone a scumbag. I'm like, that's not me, yeah.
3: you know? It's crazy. You said that there was a, uh, there's a meeting I go to every Thursday, I was telling you about. And one of the guys came in and he's like, um, be a thermostat, not a thermometer. And I was like, huh? And I thought about it for a second. It's like, the thermostat dictates the weather, whereas the thermostat just reads the weather, it like adapts to the weather. So it's like, if you, you bring that mindset, with you everywhere you go that positive energy with you everywhere you go instead of like reacting to what's going on in any environment you're in and i was just kind of like boom crazy but do you have like today is there like certain like mantras or prayers or like how do you keep yourself grounded in that on a day-to-day so my big thing like
6: you know if you know me like just keep going I, and so many like I, I
5: say it without even knowing that I'm saying it, you know. And i it's just been something I've always said. So and like so that was a mantra early on, just to keep going, keep going, keep going. It's kind of like that bite down your mouth mouthpiece mentality, you know. It's like I know I'm gonna get knocked on my ass. I know that this is not gonna be perfect, but if I have the ability and I have this blind faith and I have this belief to keep going, and I do that, most of the time things work out. Like it's never as good as it seems and it's never as bad as it seems. And that's why I need to kind of keep keep pushing forward.
6: Mm-hmm. So I do, I try to keep it simple with the keep going. You know, my friend over here has me back into my, you know, meditation routine, which I'm grateful for. And, you know, I, I <laughs> there's just this
5: realness that comes. Like I see this dude and he's like got the necklaces and the beads and I'm like, this dude must levitate, right? Like, <laughs> you know? And the reality is, is, like I went on one of his retreats and I've gotten to know Donnie over the past couple of months. Like he's like, dude, there's totally like three or four days in a row where I won't meditate or like I'll, I'll like, it'll be one minute and out the door. And like, that's, that's okay. Because I think my mind works. Like I must do 20 minutes. I must do this. And like, you know, I always tell people I run marathons, right? And so, like, and I don't do them for time. I do it for the community and I do it for the philanthropic nature of it, like to raise money and bring people together. But whenever people tell me, like, I can't run a marathon, i guess like, yes, you can.
6: You absolutely can. It's
5: way more, people make it way more dramatic than you think. And back to the mantras, like, if you commit and you just keep going during that, you know, couple months leading up to it, there'll be days that you don't run. And you'll feel bad about it. Just like there's days when I don't meditate or whatever it might be, that I'll feel bad about it. But I have another, like, every day is an opportunity to improve on the day before. You know, and, like, brick by brick, I've built this foundation for myself where I know that this whole, like, keep going mentality and mantra, that works for me. And that might be too intense for other people, but that's just what, that's what works for me. And so um and it's not always easy, man. Like there's some days when I wake up and I wanna get out of bed, or I look at the calendar, and I'm like, God, I really have like to meet with this person, you know, and then like you take the meeting and it's like the great it's like my old old man taught me in business, like you take every meeting you never know what's gonna come out of it. And that's been my experience.
4: What would you say to somebody maybe in this room or somebody that's listening that's struggling and they they're stuck, they know they're stuck,
5: but they just don't know what to do
4: about it? What would you tell them?
5: This question I get asked so much, man, and, and Darren, I'm sure you have some thoughts on it, because I know
6: people, you know, reach out to you. And, and so I'm sitting here listening to Darren and I'm thinking, like, him
5: talking about overdosing and Starting using pills at 15 and being suspended and kicked out and
6: like we've been kicking it the last day and I'm like this is like the sweetest kindest human I've ever met and you know like as much as Darren might want to take credit for that like that's not him like there's something else out here looking out after us and
5: I had to believe that in order to heal get better and you know, look, like I grew up Presbyterian, like, we, I was a cheaster, I went to church on Christmas and Easter, you know, like, that's just the way it was. And so this is not like a religious thing for me. This is
6: spiritual. And, and so, like, when someone is struggling, I think it's always important to leave with love. Telling them they should do this or should do that
5: usually doesn't work. They'll probably combat that. Typically, if I'm working with a family that really wants to intervene, it's amazing how many families out there don't have the ability to get the the family together because the system's so broken. Sit the person down that they're worried about and just have an honest, real, loving conversation with them. You know, because they think that the person's going to run or they're going to do this. And like, when you lead with love, most of the times, like the person on the other end of the table is at least going to hear you out. They might not listen, but they're going to, like, it's going to get inside them somehow. Um, But then, like, if a young guy comes to me, he's like, you know, like, because I'm sure you get this, and I get this a lot, it's like, it's not about what I'm saying, it's about people watching the way that I live my life. It's nothing that I'm saying. And so when a young guy comes to me, or a young girl comes to me, and they say, like, I'm curious about my relationship with drugs and alcohol. I challenge them. I say, like, try to not drink for a week. Try to not drink for two weeks. See where that leads you. See what you feel with that. See if you can even do it. Because if you can, then you might want to look a little deeper at your relationship with drugs and alcohol. So that's like the 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 early stage person that's like kind of like in this exploratory phase. You know, get into therapy, start being honest with people around you. When the when the jackpot's already hit. You know, and I and someone's like, you know, physically addicted to opiates or benzos or, you know, blowing an eight ball of coke a day. It's like, all right, this party's over. We got to like intervene. It's a wrap. You're going away. You know, like so there's kind of like two levels of this thing. Um, But just letting people know and I've had people reach out to me 18 months after
6: saying like, you know, they remember it. it is
3: not always going to happen on my watch. Mm -hmm. Talking about being there for people. What what was, we talked about the shift from, you know, like you basically being on that cardboard box to getting sober. What was the shift of getting sober and building a new life, constructing a new foundation for your life, and then wanting to move into work, like release? Amazing question. I, uh,
5: (laughs) it's just so crazy that I'm sitting here. I walked here today. Like I live right in this neighborhood. This is home. And you're at like, so I, I remember I was, I was in rehab for four and a half months. I was a sick one. They wouldn't let me leave. And I remember at the end, I was really pushing hard to go back to like South Jersey, Philly, like do something down there. And my counselor kind of like said to me, what about New York? And what I knew about New York at that point in time is that their sports teams sucked that it smelled bad that it was expensive and like that it was overcrowded because that's what my dad instilled in my mind but for some reason like talk about this higher force like i said let's look at it so i moved to new york city and when i tell you i knew zero people i knew zero people i knew nobody i knew that i had to be sober and i knew that there was something really interesting around the people that I had met in in treatment that like those were kind of my people. And so the real shift for me happened when I showed up here in New York, I started throwing myself into that community and meeting other people who had this shared journey, you know, and had come out on the other side. And I started to realize like, you know, I can still play golf, I can still go to concerts, I can still, you know, go to games. Uh, I can do all the things that I want to do and do it sober. And so once I had that like in my pocket, I also knew that I love helping people, you know, and so I went and I found a job in behavioral health care for the first five years here in New York. And then five years ago, like I doubled down and I bet on myself and I said, let's, <laughs> let's do this thing. And, you know, we started release recovery, which is like a, a well, what I describe as like a full service addiction recovery and, and, and mental health organization, right? We, we provide transitional living here in the city, up in Westchester, and then we also do a lot of that that work, that intervention work, that sober coaching, that companionship, like. This dude Mario in the back in the jacket, like he's like taking <laughs> he's taking more dudes to men and women the treatment than than anyone I've ever met. I mean, this guy is a road dog, and and that's like he's one of those people I talk about, right? Like these special people that you meet and they're on the same wavelength than you because like they might like nice things, they might like having fun, but at the end of the day, the most important thing. To us is to help others, and so we've been able to, you know, create a pretty a pretty cool business. And I look around this room, and there's people that like I'm not going to out you, don't worry, but like have come through our program and are like still showing up, and like that's the stuff, dude, that I'm not like equipped to even like think about because I get I get too choked up. And so like, um, it's been an awesome five years, and then we started the nonprofit, which basically we're raising money. And, like, I do, again, like, I acknowledge the, the whole thing with, like, being on tell, like, has really helped with that, right? Like, that's been one of the, because we raised, like, a million bucks last year, and we sent, we spent, we sent, like, you know, 40-some people to treatment, you know, and we started their recovery journey. And, uh, you know, it's, like, that whole idea of, like, the greatest gift is in the giving. And, and I was telling you last night, Darren, it doesn't mean that, like, I don't get fried out being around alcoholics and sick people all the time it's like too much sometimes but that's just the way it is. Who would you
4: say is the one person that gets your comeback story shout out? We know we can't do this alone. Who's the one for you? What do you mean? Who's that one person that's always been in your corner, always had your back no matter what? Who comes up?
6: Uh, I mean it's family for me man, like you know. I just think, um, dude, that would rock me, holy shit. To so my parents, you know, for sure. And then, uh, you know, like my brother, Matt, he he's five
5: years older than me, and he like, he hung in there. And I'll never forget, like my uh, my niece, Taylor, never seen me load, like the only niece or nephew that, well, like I have an older
6: niece that's, you know, that was around when I was getting fucked up, but like so my my nephew Jack, I'll remember I'll never forget like being in like my 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 uh sister-in-law is giving birth to Jack, and I'm down the hall and like ripping xytod, you know, in the bathroom and uh, you know but then like all my nieces and nephews after that, none of them seem to be high
5: you know, or drunk, which is like such a gift. The reason I say that is because like my brother
6: knows that. You know, like he knows that I, you know, drove his like pregnant wife around
5: high. Like he knows that, like, you know, he he knows that. And this whole idea, and like we talk about it a lot, Donnie, is like a forgiveness. You know, and there's like like, one of the things I'm working on right now is like being able to forgive in a way that doesn't mean I have to like take, like bring that person back in my letter, like whatever, but just like forgive, right? And and be okay. But yeah, my parents, my mom and dad are special humans. Uh, my dad just turned 80. We like took him out to the Indy 500, and it was just like this unbelievable weekend. And the guy is just like the junkyard dog, you know, the guy's not stopping. For his light like, chicken wings for 80 years. Like, that's, that's the diet. And then my mom's like, you know, she's got the biggest heart. She's so selfless. And I just wish that like, sometimes she would, uh, she would take some of what she gives away for herself. So mm-hmm. I can't dwindle it down to one It's those three people.
4: Mm-hmm. Thanks, man. Well, it's been an honor, a privilege and a blessing to, uh, hear your story, and, and for you to ultimately create this space for us. So Darren and Darren and I can just come in and, and do our thing. So just want to acknowledge you for the human that you are and how you're showing up in the world. And I uh, feel like we haven't known each other long, but uh, besties for life, for sure.
3: Uh, you're much more than the winner of the Bachelorette, bro. Like, <laughs> yeah. seriously, you're a good man, dog. It's, it's been an honor to meet you and hang around you sleeping. I appreciate you guys. And
5: I just got to like, I, I got to say it back to you guys. Like, I really, I feel very comfortable up here. I feel very proud, you know, being amongst you two, because, you know, and I'll say it this way, like, you know, we had the balls to like step out and be like, okay, not being okay. And like talking about whatever it is that's going on. And that's not some like Debbie Downer depressing shit. Like, Make no mistake about it. I would say like we're we're living pretty good right now. Yeah,
3: I got no complaints. <laughs> <laughs>
5: so, thanks guys.
3: Thank Appreciate you, you guys. Appreciate
4: <laughs> What's up, Comeback Stories Family? It's Donnie dropping in here. So did you know that Darren and I's relationship started by me being his personal development, mindfulness, and mindset coach? I want to let you know about both my one-on-one coaching program, The Shift, and my group mastermind, Elevate Your Purpose. These coaching programs are specifically designed for people who are ready to take the next step in their purpose and level up their career, personal finances, and have more connected, deep, and meaningful relationships. My gift and part of my purpose is to help others take that next step in leveling up their lives so that they can have a greater impact on the lives of others, create success that's sustainable, yet evolves and grows and help build a legacy that will outlive your life. If this is calling you, just go to DonnieStarkins.com and apply for either one of my programs.
0: If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever.